I, I love William's story. I've seen it a few times now, but just really helpful, really simple, really clear. And we're going to be picking up on, on that and looking at this morning at being transformed in our financial health, being transformed in our financial health. And um, I, I know it's been a very helpful series for many of us to seeing how you transform personally, spiritually, physically, and so on. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, how you're transformed in your money and your financial health. And we're going to be doing it from Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Luke 16. But this is one of the, well, I think it's probably the strangest parable Jesus ever told. I think it's the most outrageous parable he told. And I think if you're new to church or you're not a Christian yet and you're just sitting in this morning, my guess is you might find yourself thinking at some point while reading this story, I don't know how on earth this man could ever have started a world religion. Why would we listen to anything he says? It is a really odd, jarring, kind of shocking story in the way that it works. And so if you, if you have a Bible, can read through in Luke 16, you'll see this is a very peculiar parable. And it endorses something that most of us would think, no, you cannot say that. And yet he does. And it's a very weird one. And we're going to have fun exploring it and seeing what it's got to do with our financial health. So Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. You're just ripping the guy off completely. The master commended the unrighteous manager Because he had acted wisely. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you haven't been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now this is a very odd story. It should be, at least if we're listening, it's an odd story. I don't know how many of you have even heard a sermon on it before. It's not the kind of thing we normally turn to. And some of you have probably read it before and thought, I do not. Forget people who aren't Christians. People who are Christians really struggle with this, I think. And so what's going on? I want you to imagine some of you will know a guy in the church called Tristan, uh, who is the executive pastor, and he sort of oversees the finances on behalf of the trustees and the elders. Um, And so I want you to imagine that you have Steve, who's just been up here interviewing me, uh, representing the owner, and you have Tristan representing the manager. Imagine this is the conversation. Tristan is caught embezzling funds from the church. Right? He hasn't been. I want to be very clear about it. If you don't know him, don't worry. Oh, you're the embezzler guy. No, he's not, he's not really, as far as I know, he hasn't been doing that. But he's embezzling money. 
And he gets caught. And the trustees and Steve haul him in and say, what's this we hear? You've been embezzling church funds. You've got 24 hours. Then we're going to tell you to clear out your desk. Turn in an account of everything that you've done and everything you've spent. So Tristan thinks, what shall I do? I am not, not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take my final 24 hours of being in this job, and I'm going to contact everybody who owes any money at all to King's Church. And I'm going to, anyone who's ever rent, rented rooms in our building and hasn't paid, and I'm going to go around all of them and say, hey, four and a half, oh, that's fine, just, write, just have two, that's fine. And he uses his power as the executive pastor, the finance guy, to go around all of, his, all of the debtors and changes their bills. Now that on its own, you go, illegal, horrible, and I'm sure Jesus will say so. I'm sure at the end of the story, Jesus will say, and that is the example of the sort of naughty thing that you mustn't do. And instead, the story ends with, and Steve and the trustees commended Tristan because he had acted wisely. What is going on? What an extraordinary story. Why are we supposed to think that as an example for the way we're supposed to live today? And what happens when you read books on this stuff is that some of the commentators try and get out of it. So they they say things like, well, maybe he took off his surcharge. Maybe he was actually being a nice guy. Or they say, well, maybe maybe Steve is commending Tristan, but Jesus isn't commending Tristan. That's not how the story reads, to be honest. What the story is saying is that although what Tristan did, and we'll call him Tristan from now on, um, if, again, if you meet him, you can introduce yourself with that, but you call, it, call him Tristan, what he did, although it was wrong, it was unrighteous, it was wicked, that's the word Jesus uses, it was wrong, he shouldn't have done it, it was nevertheless wise. It showed wisdom. And my question this morning is, why is that true? What on earth about this story are we intended to imitate? It, does, it is not, Jesus is not saying, embezzling funds, fine, go for it, tick, that's all good. He's not saying that. He's saying this is unrighteous, you shouldn't do it, but you should learn from it because this man is displaying wisdom. And I want us to ask the question, why is that true? What does this story have to teach us about financial health? Because it does. And I think the thing that it has to teach us about financial health is that wisdom in the Bible is living in the present in light of the future. Wisdom in the Bible is living here and now in light of then. And that's what this man did. And I want you to think through the Bible. If you sort of read much of the scriptures, you'll know there's, you know, Proverbs is a book all about wisdom and foolishness. And in Proverbs, you'll find that that's what wise people do. So the wise man in Proverbs works hard preparing the soil and plowing his seed so that when the harvest comes, he reaps a reward. He works hard in the present in light of his future. The wise parent raises her children, training them in the ways of the Lord, or the wise father trains his children in the ways of the Lord. And it's hard work. And many of you know, it is exhausting. It's tr- difficult to train your children. It's much, more fi- much easier just to let them run amok and do what they want. But the wise person puts in a lot of work in order that they then reap a reward when that child has grown up and has learned how to live and how to think and how to behave. And wisdom is that trade-off. Wisdom is continually living in the here and now in light of the future. The wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. And the reason why he's wise is because he built his house on rock, which is very hard work, but withstands the storm rather than on sand, which is easy but falls apart quickly. So he lives in the present 
making more effort now in light of the future which is to come. And we could use many other examples. That's the way wisdom works in the Bible. Foolishness is the opposite. Foolishness in the Bible is when you live in the present without any recognition of the future to come. So in the Bible, Esau is in many ways the clearest example of a fool. Esau is the dum-dum 101 in the Bible. Because what Esau does is he has, a, there's a very uh, huge inheritance coming his way called the birthright, which in ancient culture means you would be able to take hold of the, the ownership of all of the, all of the um, father's possessions. So you've got your birthright. But what he does is he swaps it for a bowl of soup. Because he comes home hunting one day, and his brother is cooking, and he says, oh, that smells good. And Jacob says, swap you for your birthright. And he goes, oh, all right then, and then takes it, and immediately starts, and he eats his soup. So he looks at this birthright, and he looks at his soup, and he says, I want the soup instead of the birthright. That is the, the foolishness par excellence in the Bible. That is the easiest way to show what a fool is in the Bible. It's somebody who just doesn't realize that the thing in the future is more valuable than the thing in the present. And it's the same today. So you can live foolishly that way now. So I could find, say I'm chairing the bus with a man who is very large, but also very irritating. And I could decide to slap him in the face. And it might get me momentary pleasure. It would have significant repercussions. I think you'll agree. That's a foolish decision because there's an instant of joy. As you connect, you say, oh, that was very, that was very satisfying. But oh my, the repercussions long term will not be good. And that's what foolishness is. Foolishness, more seriously, I suppose, you buy a, car, buy a car on a credit card and you cannot afford to service the debts. You have made a foolish decision because you've got the short-term joy of driving the car that you can't afford, but the long-term consequences will ravage your family. Even more seriously, you have an affair with somebody. You go for the short-term buzz and excitement of an affair outside of marriage but the long-term devastation it wreaks on you and your family and your children is so large that it is a foolish decision. And that would be true of many, we give many examples. Well, it's the same with your finances. That's the principle of biblical wisdom. Financial wisdom is about living in the present in light of the future. And I don't know if you ever did this thing when you were a child where you, you'd cover the moon with your thumb. So I used to do I'm doing it with one of the lights now. I used to do this. And you'd say, Mom, 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 look, my thumb is bigger than the moon. And I remember as a little kid, it was hard to understand why that wasn't true. And of course, the reason is that your thumb is so much nearer that it looks like it's bigger, but it's not. Wisdom in the Bible is the capacity to see, that, to, to put these two things next to each other. So you're looking at your thumb and saying, it's bigger than the moon, it's bigger than the moon. But wisdom is the ability to put them next to each other and say, oh, no, it's not. This is just nearer. This is much bigger. And wisdom is the discernment, the ability to do that, to accurately compare the size of these two things and to make the right decisions on that basis. Now, Jesus in this story is teaching on financial wisdom, and he is saying that what the manager did, what the Tristan character did, although it was unrighteous, it was wise because he was weighing up the size of his present and the size of his future and was making smart decisions on the basis of that. Now, why am I saying that? Why, why do I think that's what's going on here? How is the manager wise? Well, he realizes his life as he knows it is nearly over. So he looks at his life and he goes, 24 hours time, my life is going to change dramatically. Everything I have now, all my responsibilities and my power and my money, that's all going to go because I'm going to get fired. My life as I know it is nearly over. I only have 24 hours left. He realized that. He also realized that the money that he currently had was not really his anyway. 
that his money actually belongs to the master or the owner or the trustees. It doesn't belong to him. So he's going, my life is nearly over, and this money isn't mine anyway. And then he realized that the period of life that he's in now is, the, is not the follow in his new life. So he uses all of his money with a view to that future rather than his present. And Jesus is telling us, he's telling you, do the same thing. Realize that your life, as you know it, is nearly over. It'll be gone in an instant. So are mine. So are my children's. It's gone like that. It's nearly over. In the scope of eternity, it's incredibly short. Realize that your possessions are not really yours anyway. They belong to the master, just like this man's did. And then realize that the life to come is infinitely more important than the little period of time you've got your money right now. It's much, much longer. It's much deeper and richer and better in every way. And therefore, you should live now with your money with a view to your future life and not your present life. That's the way you should think about your money. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why this man is an example. Despite being wicked and unrighteous, he is wise. He is living in the present in light of the future. So how do we know that's, that is what he's talking about? How do we know that that's not me trying to get Jesus off the hook just like these other commentators? Well, I think because the way that Jesus applies it in verse 9 tells us this is what, he, this is what he's doing. In verse 9, Jesus says, in the same way, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That's what this guy did. Use your money now, get as many friends as you can, so that when this phase of your life is over, you've now got an eternal home with lots of friends in it. Now, I used to play Monopoly with my brothers and sisters I don't know if you're a Monopoly fan or whatever. So I used to play Monopoly with my brothers and sisters. And I'm the oldest of four kids. And my little sister, Sarah, is five years younger than me. She lives about a mile from here, actually, in Broccoli or Nunhead. And um, she's, so she was significantly younger at a key age where if we were playing Monopoly, I would know more than she did. And I used that in my evil genius way. I used that to my advantage in the game of Monopoly. And the, this, here's what I did. I realized that I knew something that she didn't. What I knew was, at the end of the game of Monopoly, the money that you have collected is of no value whatsoever because it all ends up going back in the box. I knew that. So what I did, and I'm sorry, just don't, you know, don't judge me, um, I used my Monopoly money to buy real money from her. Right, that's what I did. So I would, so I would sometimes offer to exchange my Monopoly money. Like, and I say, she, she thinks she's getting a great deal, right? She's five. So I say, 500 pounds for one pound. That's all I'm right? So what I wanted was a pound that can go into the shop and actually buy a game or a sweet. She wants 500 pounds so she can buy Regent Street. And I think, that doesn't matter because in a few minutes' time, it's all going back in the box. And you don't have the right to buy anything in the real world. I've got the only money that matters. Now, that's cynical, a little bit evil. But I think Jesus would commend me, despite my unrighteousness, for acting wisely in that story. The thing is, and I'm kind of kidding. I'm kind of kidding, but I am also being serious. Because this story is no less scandalous than that. And in the story, the, the, the point is, you see, if I was to do that, I would be making a wise trade 
Now, it's unfair I did it to a five-year-old girl, I know that, but it's, it's a wise trade, because what I'm doing is I'm acknowledging that what I have now, this game is just going to go back in the box. Doesn't, this, there's no ongoing value to this money except in what it can secure me for the real life that starts in about an hour's time. That's what this man was doing in the story, and that, friends, is what Jesus is telling you to do. You have monopoly money now. William was just testifying to it. You can make money. You can get lots. You can have a big monopoly account or a small monopoly account. You remortgage everything. You go bankrupt, or you end up owning every property on the board. But it all goes back in the box at the end of it. And so do you, by the way. You end up in a box too. And at that point, the only thing that will matter with your money is what did you use it for to save up for the life that is truly life that begins now? Because the day is coming when you and I are going to live and inherit a new world, a new creation, in the source of which the old money won't really count for much. And no one will say to you, oh, wow, you had all that money? Wow, that was in your bank account? Well done you. Instead, all that will matter is, did you get a pound that could really go and buy sweets, that could really go and buy real things that you wanted? Did you get the life that is truly life? Did you use it in a way that stored up eternal treasures? And Jesus is saying, that's what this man did. He lived in the present in light of the future, and so should you. And that's what financial health looks like. So let's get practical with that for a moment. If financial health involves living with an eternal perspective, what does that actually mean for our approach to money in our day-to-day lives? What, you know, okay, I understand the principle now, so you measure eternity versus the present, and live with your monopoly money now in the light of what comes then. I get that. What does that mean in terms of practical outworking here and now. I'm going to throw out just five quick things, four don'ts and a do, okay, that I think come out of this story, and I'm sure there are others. What does it mean you should do? Well, firstly, don't despise it. Don't despise money. Jesus says this is what some believers do. He says it in verse 8. For the sons of this world, he says, are wiser in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's a fascinating comment. And it might make some of us a bit uncomfortable. But some of us may know that from experience to be true, that sometimes people who are not believers will use their money in a much wiser way than people who are. And I think one of the reasons why that can be true is that Christians can feel so worried about wealth and what it might do to them that we don't use it very wisely, but instead sort of shovel it away or say, oh, I don't want to look at that, I don't want to think about it. I, I, I despise it almost. It was obviously in this story been referred to as unrighteous wealth, although I think that's Jesus referring to the way the money has come about rather than the actual, as if money is evil. Money's not evil, but he's saying, some of us do that. We go, I don't like it. Get rid of it. Despise it. And some of us can be naive about money so we don't end up planning or budgeting or investing or saving or giving or making a will or whatever it might be that is actually a good financial decision, but we decide not to do it because we're despising money. So what we cannot have, and, and Jesus is saying, don't do that, guys. Don't allow all of the wealth to be taken by the people who are not pursuing it for God's purposes. You need to make sure that the people who do pursue it for God's purposes are being wise in the way they use it. Don't be like those who will say, oh, I, I despise money. What we can't have is that when you're playing Monopoly, you, all, the, the world is buying up the oranges, right? The oranges were always my favorite sets. Bow Street, Marlborough Street, Vine Street, each one affordable, and yet you get lots of money, and people often land on them because it's a back three spaces from, you know, just past the Strand. Do you remember that? If you haven't played Monopoly, this won't make any sense. But anyway, the oranges were always my... And what we can't have is that the, the, 
the world is going, we, are, we want the oranges. We want hotels on Park Lane and Mayfair. Meanwhile, the church are saying, oh, no, I don't want that. No, I'll have the Browns and the electric company. <laughs> Whoever wanted the electric company. They, nobody, and what Jesus is saying is you mustn't despise the gifts that you've been given as if they don't matter. And instead, live wisely. Don't despise the money you have. It's very powerful. Secondly, don't ignore it. Verse 11, if then you haven't been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? So your task, in many ways, is to be a good steward of the wealth that you have. And if you are, then you end up being given more. And I don't just mean more material wealth, I mean more eternal wealth, the wealth that really matters. And actually, it if you ignore it, you can't do that. If you don't know how much money you've got, you don't know where it's going, you can't be an effective steward of anything. Good stewardship requires faithfulness with what we've been given. Don't ignore it. Now, some of us lean that way, right? Despising or ignoring. You know that if you had a weakness, it would be that you'd be prone to despise or ignore money. Some of us lean the other way. And we need to hear, don't serve it. Right? In verse 13, you cannot serve God and money. That's where William's story was going, I think. My tendency was, you know, some people, oh, I don't like money. And other people go, I love money. And that's the challenge. And so there might be others here for whom the, the real provocation of this story is don't serve it. Don't allow it to become God's. You can make money for money's sake, and you can make money for God's sake. You, you can't do both. Make money for God's sake if you do. Fourth, don't think it's yours. The guy in the story, for all of his scoundrelness, actually got this right. He didn't think it was his. It's like, belongs to this guy. I am a steward. Money isn't yours. This is verse 12. And if you haven't been faithful with what is another's, who will give you what's your own? Answer, nobody will. You've got to be faithful with someone else's and you've got to understand that it belongs to someone else in order to do that. Your money isn't yours. It belongs to God. And one day it all goes back in the box. Instead of those four things, use it. Use it. Use it in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you, that's the friends may receive you, into eternal dwellings. What do you do? Use it with your eternal future in mind. So I want to ask you this question. What changes would you make if your only financial goal was to invest in eternal things? If... if if you said actually nothing else matters, that's the only thing I'm thinking about, what changes would you or might you make if your only goal was to invest in eternal things financially? See, if Monopoly money could actually buy me real stuff, if you were playing my sister all the time, would you still buy Pall Mall? And the answer might be yes. The answer might be, yeah, I do want to buy Pall Mall because then I get the set and I get more Monopoly money, which means I can exchange it with my sister for even more stuff. So you might well invest it. And Christians often do that. It's right that we do. We invest in building businesses or invest in whatever it might be, homes and other things. We say, this is actually good stewardship in order to produce a greater harvest for God. So we might, the answer might be yes. But imagine your only question was, what will maximize what I get back from God in eternity as a, as a reward for what I've done? Imagine that was my only, my only call. Would I budget more carefully? Would I budget at all? Maybe that might be a start. Would I save more or save less? Would I plan more thoughtfully? Would I spend more on hospitality in order to literally make friends for myself using my unrighteous wealth? Would I do that? Would I give more away so that more people heard 
and believed the gospel, and then they literally turned around and welcomed me into eternal dwellings. So I'll see them one day, and they might run up to me and say, thank you for giving, it meant that I could hear the gospel. I'm about to go and thank the person who prayed for me, and the other person who told me, but thank you for giving. Might that be what you do? There might be all sorts of changes, saving, investing, planning, budgeting, giving, whatever it might be. But if that was our goal, we would be living with financial health. We would be living in the present, in the light of the future. So don't despise or ignore or serve or think it's yours with respect to money. Use it. Use it for God's purposes. Now we're going to wrap up in just a minute, but before I do, let me just point out how Jesus, with this, not only said it, he also did it. Jesus practiced exactly what he preached on this one. Because what he did was he had all the possessions in the world. He had, like Psalm 2, Ask of me, son, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. I will make it yours, God says to Jesus. He has the inheritance rights to everything, and he lays it aside and becomes a slave, taking the form of a servant in order to rescue people and reconcile them to God. He lives in the present in light of a future. And how do I know that? Because Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned its shame. What he did was he took the the, the thumb-sized suffering of the cross, which is right here in his face, but is very excruciating and unpleasant in so many ways. But he said that, as painful as it is, is not as big as the moon of the joy that will come when all of you lot are worshipping him. And so he compared the two and he said, the cross versus this, this global community reconciled to God, of course it's bigger. This is awful at the here and now, but it's nothing compared to this. Joy comes in the morning. Weeping lasts for a a night, but joy comes in the morning. And he put them next to each other and he said, I want this. I see the pain, I see the joy, and I'm choosing the joy. And it's only because he did that life for the gospel that Jesus effected to bring about you and me to be returned to him. I find that amazing that he didn't just say it. He didn't just tell it as a clever story. He actually embodied that principle. He lived in the present in light of his glorious future. And so my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, would be, let's be those who, like Jesus, put our eternal future ahead of our monopoly money world. And as we do, we are gradually transformed in our financial health to look more and more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that you have sent your son to live out this astonishing truth. Lord, it's not just a teaching of how to live. It's at the heart of what you've done for us. You have made a way for us to be right with God, and you've done it by choosing to suffer something terrible in the short term, but motivated by the glorious long-term future. And you've now drawn us into the same kind of future where we have an eternal inheritance waiting for us because of something Jesus has accomplished. Lord, I pray that you would help us to make week-to-week, day-to-day financial decisions shaped by that future and gradually to be transformed more and more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.